and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts, the show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussein. Uh, Phoebe's away once again, so we are doing Fellas Corner, our unofficial Fellas Corner, and this week in the corner we have uh, someone who's writing I've really enjoyed for a very long time, uh, Ashwin Rodriguez. Uh, Ashwin, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Uh, Ashwin is a freelance journalist. He's done like a lot of stuff for uh, GQ. You may have seen his work on Vice. You may have seen his work at Mel Magazine. Um, yeah, he's doing some really fun stuff, some really, really interesting stuff as well, including on the character that we are going to talk about on this episode uh, and the sort of intersection between US politics and Poster's Brain. Um, but before we get into that, uh, Ashwin, as a uh, first timer on the show, I usually ask our guests to uh, bring in a post to sort of warm us up. Uh, you brought a few things, some very contemporary things as well. I thought we could start off by talking about this uh, post, this video that has sort of been going around uh, today at the time of recording on the 13th of September. Um, this is from the Financial Review. Uh, and it says, Gurner Group founder Tim Gurner tells the Financial Review Property Summit workers that workers have become, quote, arrogant since COVID, and, quote, we've got to kill that attitude. Um, in this video, which you can hear here. People decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID, and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years. And we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment. Uh, as you can see, uh, kind of a piece of shit, <laughs> but there's a backstory behind this dude, right? Because he's the avocado toast guy. Um, so Ashwin, do you know like what, what's going on with this guy? Do you know like much about his background? And uh, yeah, why, why, why did you think, why did you bring this to the show today? What does it sort of say about kind of the state of posting right now? Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny because I saw that post a million times with people, quote, tweeting it, but only a few days later, I saw that someone identified that he is the avocado toast guy. So maybe he was just losing steam from, you know, that original mm. quote. And he came out to say some things where, you know, even these people, if they're so divorced from reality, I'm sure they know what this sounds like and, you know, how it's going to yeah. be clipped up and shared. And yeah, it seems to have, you know, served its purpose in terms of being, I don't think anyone has watched any other part of that conference or whatever it is, but everyone has seen this guy talk and has been introduced to his large forehead. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> his very large forehead and his uh, seemingly receding hairline. Um, but I think you actually touched on something really interesting here, which is about like what the purpose of these conferences are. Um, there have been like, you know, these, these types of sort of like, you know, post COVID kind of get back to work conferences that are sort of coming at a time when, uh, economic collapse is basically occurring at a particularly fast rate. Um, and where like, you sort of have this crisis, it seems where a lot of the guys who had benefited from a period of very low interest rates and sort of artificial growth, for lack of a better term, um, you know, are now trying to figure out how they can kind of retain some sort of relevance in a system that no longer kind of really valorizes them. Um, and I wonder whether this is kind of part of the phenomenon that's going on. The other, the other part I was thinking about was this guy must clearly know that he had like the sort of avocado toast stuff, which became so ubiquitous as shorthand for like millennials and their relationship to the economy. He must be kind of realizing that he does need new material. Yeah. And I do wonder whether he had been workshopping new material, <laughs> but hadn't quite stuck. And this is kind of the, this is the thing that is now stuck. So he's sort of stuck to the same format. And this is very posters brain too. Like, you know, you, the format sort of stays the same. You know what works, you know what sticks, but you kind of got to add a little variation to it. You got to add a little, like a little twist to it. And so in a lot of ways, this isn't that different from the avocado toast post. It's just, um, it's just like a, it's just like a reiteration of it, it seems. Yeah. It's basically like, I think because it doesn't have something as ridiculous in it as avocado toast, it seems like more of a, 
you know, quote unquote, intelligent observation, but it's still the same thing as gesturing at like a huge problem that everyone agrees, you know, something is wrong, but then blaming, you know, something ridiculous, like this sense of entitlement that workers have, which is like mm. so clearly not the case. But yeah, it just seems like another, you know, maybe he is that unself-aware, but I think cynically, you know what that sounds like and you know you're going to say it and, you know, reach a broader audience than, you know, saying that interest rates have risen and I want to, you know, mm. recognize the sunk costs of all these commercial leases that I have instead of, you know, just blaming lazy workers for not wanting to be lurked on yeah. by their managers. Yeah. And I do wonder, because like with the, with the avocado toast thing, um, so I was, I was like at BuzzFeed around about the time that like the millennial avocado toast meme was sort of, you know, very kind of omnipresent. And like, I remember during that period of time, the reaction to it was to like make merchandise, right? It was to, you know, make merchandise, make posts to kind of react to those posts. This sort of feels like a bit of a different flavor. Um, it may have like the same energy, but I guess like in the post BuzzFeed era, it doesn't necessarily have that same level of like memeable quality. It is very much, I mean, this is very much an example of like a guy who says the thing that you're not supposed to say, right? Yeah. And even though it's kind of ridiculous and the idea of like getting unemployment to 50% is just like, like dumb shit. And, this, and again, like the fact that it is so dumb does sort of imply to me that like he is, he sort of knows what he's saying. And as with all these, and it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of like, what are these conferences for? Um, and I do wonder whether like what he's actually doing is realizing that no, what like the whole point of this is to sort of kind of get attention. And it doesn't matter if that attention is kind of good attention, it doesn't matter if it's useful attention, attention is attention regardless. And what better way to go viral on Twitter, the place where people are supposed to get mad at you, than to say something that will give people exactly what they want. So in some ways I do wonder whether like doing the segment is is kind of like feeding into his like whatever PR strategy he think he, he thinks he's playing. Yeah, I mean probably because like if he was sharing any kind of unique insight for those tier of people, they wouldn't broadcast it and share it on the internet for other people to see. So it is like mostly probably some kind of branding exercise or you know just in mm. whipping the outrage machine. Well, all I can say, Tim Gunner, is uh, enjoy the free publicity on this show. I guess. <laughs> Um, I, I, I guess I fell for it. Um, Me too. There's another post that you mentioned as well, which I thought was really interesting. It came up a few weeks ago. And uh, when we were talking on DMs, one of the things that came up was just like the differences between Americans and British people, and I guess maybe Europeans as well, I don't know, in relation to uh, uh, certain aspects, like certain nostalgic aspects. And Look, this is not the first time that like a gifted and talented post has sort of gone viral. And again, people have gotten mad at it. But this is the most recent iteration. Um, I'm not going to read the person's app uh, because she's already like dealt with enough shit that it is. But I will say, here, here, is, here is what the post says. It says, to high achievers, straight A's and gifted and talented as my therapist says a lot. My therapist says a lot of us get existential this time of year because our whole lives revolved around school and our bodies don't know what to do without it. Um... This you brought this up because I, I guess there's two elements to this. First, there's the sort of like gifted and talented genre of posting, but then the other side is also um, my therapist said this. And as a as like a posting formula, um, I've seen a lot of like my therapist said so and so, which is really kind of a way to like rejig a format in which you want to say you want to make some sort of opinion, but you know that people are going to react pretty harshly to um yeah i mean before we get into that i wondered why like yeah what, what are your thoughts on this post why why did you why is it one of the things that kind of resonated when i asked you like what post has recently lived rent free in your head yeah it just seems like a you know classic you know almost engineered for engagement posts where you know something with being formerly gifted and then you know quoting your therapist and i think it allows you to you know say something more flattering about yourself or, you know, explain a behavior without explaining it in the first person, which would sound insane, you know? Mm. And like, yeah, just this idea. And I was, I was saying like, you know, whether it's my therapist or, you know, sometimes people will be like, oh, my, my four-year-old just recited pi to 800 digits. And it's like, no, they didn't. But, you know, <laughs> you get to say something and like put it in the, you know, frame of someone else. 
And yeah, it's one of those things I feel bad how much she got piled on for it. But, you know, it's mm. one of those things that feels like classic Twitter. Um, you know, yeah. the former gifted. I think people love an excuse to bring that up. Like even even when you're like responding to it, someone else will be like, I'm a former gifted kid, but I don't act this way. But they still feel the need to, you know, raise their hand. Yeah. Um, which I'm curious to see hear what it's like over there, if that's a uniquely American thing. Um, you know, it does feel like a, it does feel like it. So I was in a sort of gifted ish program when I was younger and Rough. my, and looking back on it, cause like, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy my time there. It sort of felt like it was one of those things where it, 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 it actually sort of felt like it was a distributional, um, or it was a means of like distributing students in a, in a sort of cost efficient way. So it's the degree to which like British schools are kind of over, um, like under-resourced and like as a result, you have extremely stressed teachers trying to figure out how to deal with like a multitude of students, right? And so um, the gifted and talented programs, which quite often were just like, you're easy to manage. We don't have to really work that much with you. So like, we're going to give you some more like freedom to kind of just do what you want. So the gifted and talented program that I was in when I was in, um, we call it primary school here. I don't know, like maybe like uh, middle middle school, maybe in the US. Okay. Um, largely involved just having slightly less structure in our days, right? And it was just kind of like, yeah, you get to sort of do reading time, but you get to bring any book you want rather than like certain texts that like other students have to read. Um, you know, you can draw if you want. You can sort of do all the... And like the thing that I remember from that is just there wasn't really any super there wasn't really that much supervision from teachers because they knew that they could put a bunch of us like you know dweebs into a classroom and we wouldn't really do anything that bad um and so then they could use the resources that they had to sort of like give more attention to students who like were more like mischievous or kind of like had to like you know had to have more support um and so it sort of felt like a way of kind of just kind of pushing us to one side and so we never like identified necessarily as being like gifted and talented because the program was not so structured to make us feel special. It was really there to just kind of get us out of a mainstream kind of class setting. And I think in high school, like at least in my experience that, you know, the whole gifted and talented thing was almost like the same. Like, again, it was very much you get like certain students get more privileges and they get more advantages because they are sort of like deemed to be naturally intelligent. But like the reality is more teachers like don't have enough resources to like manage a whole class and like work, you know, collectively around them. And so this is really just a kind of efficient way of dealing with different types of students. But it seems like in the States, gifted and talented programs like are so significant to people's lives that they then struggle or it see at least again, this is very much just on Twitter. It kind of feels like this segment sort of identify with that so much that it becomes impossible to sort of like escape that type of framing. And I don't know how much, like how much of that is just sort of like your classic sort of sense of nostalgia. We are all like to a degree nostalgic for like elements of our childhood or kind of, you know, the periods of our life where things seemed easier and we sort of identify more with a sense of feeling that is half remembered than the actual realities of kind of being in these types of programs or these settings. Yeah. Well, I think that makes me realize it's kind of connected that idea of, you know, our bodies not being, you know, used to not having school. I think that's something a lot of people, regardless of their education status, can relate to where like once they go into the workplace, they don't necessarily have these, you know, regular check-ins or exams or tests to kind of regularly see right. how they're performing. And the gifted programs here, as far as I I'm aware in my observations are more about posturing or getting the kid in the right place for, you know, having a better chance of going to an elite university. So it's all kind of leading up yeah. to those moments as opposed to, you know, more free formed. I'm sure that exists here. Yeah. I'm not that aware of it, of like, you know, giving them more freedom in terms of what they read and their time. It was more so yeah. a differentiator that would later, you know, be something that yeah. would be a resume. Um, attribute yeah i mean i guess like in britain i was so i've been thinking about like just the fact that everyone i know who sort of got these types of privileges um like they haven't sort of hinged their identities around that right 
like even if they sort of got all the advantages that came from those programs it was not like it's very rare for people to like sort of see that as a formative experience it's it's kind of I don't really know very many British people for whom like school was this sort of, you know, wonderful moment that they really desperately want to go back to. And again, this is all like anecdotal evidence. But like part of me just wonders whether like the British schooling system is so miserable that like no one would really want to go back to it anyway. Um, And also just a broader culture that to me that speaks to like the idea of, you know, the British education system, especially state education system kind of reinforcing the idea that like regardless of like how intelligent you might be or how creative you might be you know this is still like a very class orientated society right i'm not saying that others aren't but like there is no there's no mythos like here to suggest that like you know you can transcend your class by you know heart you know there's no like american dream situation here it's like very much reinforced that like you know you should know your place don't you dare think about like kind of going above it we're putting you in this gifted and talented program because actually like we just don't want to like handle you and we think that you'll be fine um and so it sort of comes out of this sense of like okay i'm being neglected but i'm also being told that i'm special and that's why i am being neglected and i wonder whether like that's why there is not so much like romanticization of these programs in a way that like has been in the u.s like i I mean, the only show that I remember watching, an American show in which the gifted and talented program is very much at the heart of like the story. Um, Malcolm in is, the Middle? Uh, Malcolm, yeah, Malcolm in the Middle. That's like the only, that was like our, my, our first introduction to like what a gifted and talented program was. And it was not like the British one in any sense of the word. Except for having like teachers that just really fucking hated you. That, <laughs> that was very present. That was very there. That was very much there. But that was more of a universal thing. Everyone got that treatment regardless of like where they were on the spectrum. Yeah, no, that's the only thing I can think of too in terms of like a media representation of it. And like I went to a public high school and we had, you know, like different, um, you know, class levels and we had some AP classes, but we didn't have anything like, I think, what was it called? The Krellboins? Um uh yeah yeah <laughs> where they were like you know shuttled off and you know had their own lunch table and all that that was not something that i was aware yeah, of yeah it's interesting yeah it's, it's it's interesting i mean the other thing i wanted to i wanted to like briefly touch on was just the you and you touched on it a bit which was like the idea of like my therapist said this this and this and that as like a, as as like a form of posting um and i find that like you know quite interesting because like every so often you do see like posts in the wild that kind of really push kind of you know to some degree they push pseudoscience lots of sort of like bizarre relationship advice um there was like a period of time where it seemed like almost every my therapist said this this and this was really kind of subtext for like you know i should break up with my partner and i'm really trying to look for a justification for it it feels like the sort of my therapist said this is a means of trying to justify or at least trying to sort of like assert opinions that you may or may not be convinced of, but you're looking for like some sort of authoritative figure to kind of tell you that like this is the right way of doing things. And I think it speaks to something else, which again, which relates to schooling actually, which is you know the fundamental part of schooling is you kind of have these authority figures that you are sort of there to seek approval from. And for some people, I imagine like it's incredibly grounding to have a teacher tell you that oh yeah, no, you're really smart, like you know you are exceptional, you're better than like other people. And so the idea of the therapist almost becoming like a substitute for a teacher is not something that is necessarily kind of that far removed. And I wondered whether there was whether you thought there was a relationship between those two things um, and just whether like the idea of like utilizing the sort of therapist as a posting format is also a means to kind of like wanting to say stuff that you're not like you're not willing to say it with your chest. So you need to like have someone, whether real or invented, to kind of make that point for you or at least sort of be there to be the shield for if people you know if people are getting mad at you for that then like actually they're getting mad at your therapist be it real or not yeah no i think that's definitely a thing without even judging the character of like the post itself introducing another character within the post makes it more interesting (laughs) and like i've definitely done that and it's very clear that i'm lying but i'll say that you know my seven-year-old has a very strong opinion about like the GOP contenders and has made this very astute observation about it. Um, And I don't have a seven-year-old. I have a seven-year-old dog, but she doesn't really say anything. But I think Mm. this idea of like just providing an observation through uh, an observer that's not yourself definitely gives you that 
kind of shielding. But the thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, if mental health is health, which it is, this is advice that is like deeply personalized and, you know, it, it could be actionable and good for you. But it's like, if I go, if I say I went to my general practitioner and he said, I should have more fiber, that's You know, that's interesting for me, but for other people, they're like, okay, well, he hasn't seen me, doesn't know my diet, doesn't know. Yeah. So it's like, how useful is this? Or is it just, you know, it's interesting because it's, you're entering a therapy setting and hearing something between a client and a therapist, but it's like, what are you supposed to do with this information? (laughs) Uh, yeah, I was going to say like, you know, this, like seeing that tweet about eating more fiber, like this, this fucking guy doesn't know how many beetroots I eat. (laughs) Fuck that guy. Um, yeah, no, I, I think the other, the other quite interesting, the other quite interesting thing you touch on is this, the idea of introducing different characters into your posts and sort of that being like a form of storytelling, but one that I don't know, like maybe they're compelling because you know, it's very, you know, in, when you're doing a normal post and you're getting mad at it, you're only getting mad at one person, but these are opportunities to get mad at like multiple people. Right. Yeah. And so as a posting format, it's fucking great. Like it may be useless as like public health advice, um, you know, uh, maybe like completely pointless to do even as a form of like spreading public information, but to give the platform what it wants, it, which is more people be it real or imaginary to get mad at. Like, I think it's, you know, that is a form of public service. In some ways, I've got to respect that. Yeah. And I think these are one of these posts that becomes like a night Shyamalan thing where, you know, after running its course for five days, someone wants to have a fresh take on it. will be like, actually, the therapist was correct here. And this person is the villain instead of this person. Yeah. I mean, the best thing to do is when you quote tweet stuff and then you introduce more characters. (laughs) If you bring your therapist in and said, and he said, "My, I told my therapist that this therapist said this about this person." He said, "It's horseshit." My therapist said, "Yeah, you create. Well, what you've got to do is create like a therapist extended universe, right? Where all the therapists are sort of like globally connected, um, and you don't know who yeah. you don't know who they are. But you're but you're fucking mad at all of them. Yeah, theraverse. <laughs> there we go. There we go. And on that note, um, on that note, uh, our warm ups are done, and we're we're, go, we're going on to the we're going on to our main workout. And speaking of workouts, uh, I tried to really do. I was working on like a segue in my head, and it hasn't it hasn't quite landed. Um, but look, I've been really fascinated by. I haven't really been watching the GOP debates. I haven't really been following U.S. politics very much. But I have been fascinated by this one guy. Um, because he just seems to have the energy of the po- of a poster, but I can't quite describe what it is. Um, his name is Vivek. Vi- um, I'm going to say I'm going to try say this. Vivek Ramaswamy. I think that's right. I hope that's right. Um, you may like British people may have heard of him in the past few weeks, largely because of British commentators kind of praising Vivek for being uh, an example of an anti woke uh candidate as if the rest of them fucking haven't tried to position themselves as being so but like this guy seemingly has just come out of nowhere at least like in like for many kind of like british casual observers of u.s politics um i had kind of like seen him do interviews i definitely seen him on like tucker carlson's podcast the thing that fascinates me is that this guy very clearly is a poster but i can't really locate where it is he like says certain things which i think are like kind of directed towards a twitter audience he speaks like a linkedin hustle and grind guy but he also like really desperately wants to court like the facebook boomer crowd so as someone who is much more familiar with vivek u.s politics and so on can you please explain to me where he came from who he is like what his background is basically all the information that sort of explains why he posts and why he talks like he is still posting yeah i mean i think the two things that very quickly explain why he talks and posts the way that he does is that he went to Harvard for undergrad. (laughs) He has a Yale law school degree and he made a shit ton of money in a biotech company. Yeah. And I think all of those things kind of explain it. And I think like this poster approach to, you know, whatever it is he's doing is based on a lot of people have said, and I, I think I buy into the idea where this is just really a branding exercise for whatever he's going to do next. Now he can say yeah. that he ran for president. Um, you know, like his wife said in a recent, in his profile, I think for the Atlantic, that he had brought up seriously running for president in December. 
So, mm. you know, kind of seems like a whim uh, to me. But, you know, like his whole approach, it seems like very similar to tech startup in that it's all marketing mm. and the product itself is shit. Like, <laughs> like even those videos where he's either working out or playing tennis, the fact that he has, you know, a high quality camera, they add music and post for these things that are supposed to just be like general, you know, genuine slice of life things. Even those are polished. Um, yeah. And I think it's like, it's all related. He has this platform of 10 truths and I'm not going to read all of them because they're pretty stupid, but like the first one is God is real. I'm not sure how you, you know, put that into policy. And then another one is reverse racism is racism. And, you know, it, it they're all very dumb, but at the same time, it yeah. seems like they might've been, you know, focus grouped in some anti-woke McKenzie meeting, but he actually said that he's like, I just wrote down things that are true. It took me about 15 minutes, which, you know, that's like a mm. poster mentality where some, <laughs> something you dashed off in the toilet if it goes viral, then you have to, you know, stand by it and people reference it, except, you know, he's done that, but with making a platform. Yeah, I'm looking through these 10 truths right now. Um, uh, of them, uh, human re human flourishing requires fossil fuels. Okay, cool. Uh, yep, reverse racism is racism. Um, parents determine the education of their children. Uh, the nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to mankind. That's not really a rule. That's kind of just a statement. I feel like one of my issues with this is really like so. These, okay, so these these he's got this on his website under slash truths. So these are apparently like the truths of the world. Um, yeah, what a weird what a weird guy. So one of the things I noticed about him also was that like a lot of his initial kind of campaign running sort of happened on podcasts. Um, and I was very interested in that as like a format, like, and, wh and whether you had any thoughts on like why he, why, why you think he's chosen like podcasts as sort of like the format to at least kind of do an initial run. I know that he's kind of like put a book out and stuff, but like this, this was pointed out as being like markedly different from other right wing or like Republican like candidates when they've sort of announced that they were running for president. Yeah, I think podcasting is a good form for him because he can he speaks in very long form and i think mm. you know it's overused now but he's definitely one of those guys that is what a dumb person thinks a smart person sounds like you know he <laughs> he enunciates very clearly and he uses a lot of words and you know i think in a podcast he can steamroll or it doesn't even have to steamroll the host because they want to hear what he has to say and he just goes on and on and says truth every other word um and i think like obviously this is a exception to the rule but his um like news and cable news appearances are much more combative and like many hassan like destroyed him and it was very painful and annoying to watch because mm. he's just on there lying about something that Mehdi hassan has in his hands you know about his tax returns and meanwhile he's like everywhere he goes he's wearing a hat that says truth on it like this shouldn't be yeah. a serious guy, but yeah, you know, here we are. Um, so it's, it, it feels like we had, because like last time around, we had Andrew Yang, right? And Andrew Yang had a hat that said math on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Andrew Yang was also a kind of posters like candidate, right? Um, like he was like a hustle and grind guy. He was also like someone who loved going on podcasts. He was like the Democratic posters candidate. And now we have Vivek, who sort of feels like he's kind of not an, like analogous, but at least kind of of the same vein. Um, and imbued in that is this sort of belief that because I think when I when I was listening to Vivek stuff and I was thinking about Andrew Yang stuff, the thing that sort of came across to me was this sort of belief that the real real life exists online, like the people who sort of like respond to your posts, the people who sort of amplify your posts, the people who kind of you know are motivated by your posts those are the people that matter and that feels like a very marked shift from what used to be the case where online environments were sort of seen as at least like at the very least like secondary to real life stuff um and so like the real people you know you would have to you so would go out you meet them they have very different concerns they don't really care about posting and the calculation that seems to have been made since then is that actually everyone cares about posting more than they care about everything else 
And I wonder in your mind, like whether whether that's sort of driving Vivek's campaign at the moment. Like, is there sort of does it, is is there something larger going on? And this may not even apply to Vivek. It might also apply to other like uh, of the GOP candidates running for president right now, because there is so much talk about like basically things that happen on the internet and this idea about the things that happen online and happen on social media platforms, like are so much more important than the stuff that is happening in the country that they're running to be president for is like, are we seeing like this like kind of like market shift in how political political candidates think about what the internet actually is supposed to like represent? Like, do they kind of now feel like, you know, where, where we sort of went from Twitter is not real life. Or have they now been pushed to the idea that like, not only is Twitter real life, but it's far more important than anything that is happening in the real world right now? Yeah, it seems like an overcorrection where earlier on, some candidates weren't clearly thinking about, you know, online as part of their strategy. And it was very clear mm. when, you know, there was a shift and they started hiring younger people to do comms. And then all of a sudden, there's funny videos and stuff. And I think like Yanks, um, run, they were very savvy in, you know, getting him onto podcasts and being more active online. Um, but it was at least like when you heard him talk, it wasn't, mm. you know, this huge departure from, you know, whatever he was saying online, where with Vivek, it seems like he's just way too online. And then when people hear him talk at length, they're like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Because I think that yeah. the thing that's important to kind of center it is he's surging in popularity, you know, with this campaign, apparently, but that surge in popularity correlates to like still single digit polling numbers for like supporting yeah. his candidacy. So that supports the idea that it's just like a branding exercise where he's, you know, creating a lot of awareness, but a, that awareness is not necessarily lining up with, you know, real world support like just today i think it's very interesting because he's like cynically you could say he's a diversity hire for a, you know racism.com and <laughs> like people are still on the fence about him being hindu um you know especially because he's always talking about judeo-christian values and our yeah. beautiful white christian country and it's like him and his wife are hindu and they have to kind of treat that as a pr obstacle because yeah the angle that they're going for yeah i mean i was sort of curious like what is what is sort of the public kind of response to his shtick because like you know we have a hindu prime minister in the uk who is like a practicing hindu at least as far as i know hasn't had to like convert to christianity or like you know um you know it, unlike kind of muslim can't like muslim sort of politicians haven't ha hasn't necessarily like publicly watered down his kind of faith in order to like placate a broadly white kind of christian audience um, but it feels like some of the things that Vivek is saying um, seems to kind of be this attempt to like distance himself from like his Hindu identity and like his sort of like non-white identity, but at the same time, not quite committing to that. And like, I wonder whether has that had like a knock on effect on his campaign? Like, do people sort of just think that, you know, not to sort of take him particularly seriously as a result of it? I guess by extension, there is also that kind of lingering thing that like, well, Trump is going to. Trump just sort of seems to be the de facto candidate. So is the is the actual play going on more about sort of triangulating themselves in such a way that like the Trump, the, a, a potential like second Trump administration will give him a job or at least give him like an advisory position? Yeah. And that's something that has been thrown out there where is he just angling for a job in the Trump candidacy or presidency? And like that would make sense. He has said that he wouldn't be interested in such a role because he wants to be a leader and not a, you know, cog in the machine. But yeah, I think there's a, I'm sure there's somewhere where you can get the betting action on that, but the chances of him, you know, being someone in the Trump administration seem far higher than him being the president uh, himself. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the sort of like the state of kind of US politics at the moment and whether, um, you know, because like the last time I sort of checked in and we sort of spoke a little bit about like Ron DeSantis on the show like a while ago, uh, the idea sort of being that like DeSantis was kind of definitely playing into culture war narratives and that this was sort of being seen as an electoral strategy 
are almost an absence of like everything else. And maybe this sort of came as an idea that like, you know, the like right wing governments don't really have any kind of idea about what to do policy wise when it comes to economics. And so they sort of feel like culture wars are sort of where they can kind of win or where they can sort of make grounding. Um, is that happening in the US like generally as well when it comes to like both right wing and left wing politics? Um, and like, if anything, like what has like sort of the state of the GOP sort of shown about where US politics is right now? uh in like as we sort of head towards the end of like the first biden administration yeah i mean that's something that you're definitely hearing a lot where the right doesn't have a platform or something material to promise so they just have to you know continue with this grievance campaign about you know either transgender issues or critical race theory or all these Mm. things and it's so weird because like they are the ones who you know have manufactured it and created all this real estate in everyone's minds and then they're the ones who are like aren't you tired of hearing about this thing that we have been you know stoking yeah for so long um and yeah like i think that's what ramaswamy is like playing into but i think it's really interesting whenever mm-hmm. he makes his grand like policy pronouncements they're pretty nuts like and i think about them in the sense of a like tech person thinking about the White House is like a startup because he said he would get rid of all of these, like get rid of the FBI and all of these other organizations and just kind of slim down. Like it sounds like something a a CEO would do if they were like acquiring a business, like, okay, we're going to go in here, we're going to gut it and, you know, get, get max, get maximum efficiency out of what we already have. Um, yeah yeah well and th- and this is also like another example of like the sort of andrew yang thing because i from what i remember when yang was running he kind of basically said the same thing but for like different reasons so like yang's kind of gambit of like you know run politics you know we should run like washington like a business so like we would slim down departments we would sort of make a lot of efficiency savings we would but his thing was more like we would run it like boston consulting group as far as i'm concerned right so there wasn't, um, there, you know, so the idea was this sort of like, there is too much sort of wasted money that is going on bureaucrats. And so in order to sort of unleash the potential of, you know, US entrepreneurship, we need to sort of slim it down. Whereas Vivek's kind of position, even though it's sort of similar, seems to kind of be much more fixated on like enemies in the White House. Like, you know, we need to slim down the, you know, we need to like, you know, cut Washington back, not just because it is like inefficient and has too much bloat, but also all the bloat is woke. And the wokeness is the reason why, like, you know, America is not great. And therefore we need to like, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this to like sort of get rid of your enemies. It sort of feels like there's a very, there's a much more personalized element to this, but it sort of speaks to something bigger about, you know, which is happening, I think, across like lots of different like Western political spheres. The idea of like the cathedral, um, all these sort of like invisible opponents that like are holding you back from achieving your true potential. And they're all hiding in the shadows and like, you know, have so much power that like, you know, uh, no one really knows about them. You can't really check on them. They are sort of absent of, you know, a political party and an administration. So now, but like, the problem is that these things don't really exist. Like in the UK, for example, lots of like conservative ministers are trying to basically blame all the country's failings on civil servants, despite the fact that like for the past 10 years, you know, the amount of civil servants like has declined and like being able to get like a civil service job is really, really difficult because of outsourcing. But somehow like, you know, the civil servants have become part of this like cabal, this blob as they call it, that are holding Britain back from like kind of economic growth post-Brexit. Is something similar happening in the US as well, where like public administrators, public servants, for example, are now kind of being cast as a sort of nebulous enemy um, that is now being targeted, not because they are economically inefficient, but because they are sort of now being portrayed as being morally uh, or you know ethically dubious as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the thing that starts with a kernel of truth where you say there's bloat in the government and you can get a lot of people to agree with that. And I think a lot of reasonable Mm. people will say there's tons of bloat in the government, but then some people will point to our military budget as like the huge outlier as to where that bloat exists. But Mm. Ramaswamy's thing, which is interesting because he's running against the guy, but it 
seems mostly based on seeding out all of these evil entities that unfairly targeted Trump or are, you know, yeah. going after good God-fearing patriots who, you know, like to take field trips to Washington, D.C. in January. But, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's he kind of yes-anded, like the bloat is yes, everybody agrees. And then he goes on like this wild tangent as to why it exists and where it actually yeah. is a problem. Yeah. I wanted to ask about these fitness videos as well, which you've written a little bit about. Uh, so we talked a little bit about like the one where he's working out with his wife in the gym. Uh, like this is like pre-debate. It's quite intense. Like there's like a gym, like his garage in the gym. Uh, there's another one where you, which you sent me where he was playing tennis to um, some, I, I don't know how you would describe the music that he's added on. Uh, Devin, can you, um, I'm going to send you the clip. Can you uh, play the music on this? And back in three and two and one. Um, yeah, there's like some very interesting fitness videos, but they're not like the only ones that GOP candidates have posted. It does seem like a lot of right wing kind of politicians now are really posting like physique photos and stuff. Uh, what's going on there? And like how like is this like a new phenomenon? And how is like the intersection of like gym bro culture like how like how what what is the relationship between like this sort of Jim Bro culture of posting and uh the sort of resurgence in right wing politics in America? Yeah. Um first I would describe the music in that tennis video as store brand LMFAO is what I heard <laughs> when I when I watched that. Um but yeah, I think this idea of you know fitness and the right wing has really taken hold because it touches on a lot of things, both financially and just aesthetically. Like one, the idea of the individual responsibility, like you can make a change and like, sure, that's true. You can, you know, go to the gym and get ripped and whatever it is. Um, and it's one of those things that's funny in contrast with how so many of our politicians are like dinosaurs who, you know, if they fall, it could be the end of, <laughs> you know, democracy. And then you have these people like Marjorie Taylor Greene doing her crazy kipping pull-ups like it's a weird contrast but you know there's also like some of these supplement companies and stuff are you know actively promoting these types of people um i just think it's it's something very flashy it's good for like the posting age because you can you know like in marjorie taylor green's case she's just posting her like crossfit workout and then said that's what she's doing to protect against covid and then called for dr fauci to be fired or jailed or whatever it is so it's like you get to make a compelling post without having to do any copywriting. You just get to, yeah. like, you're literally jumping around and waving, and then you can post it and get some engagement. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think there's like the idea of fitness, I think, plays very well with them because, you know, I think they're always talking about fitness in terms of either like mental fitness or, you know, being fit to be part of this country, which usually has nothing to do with you know, obviously physical ability, but more so what your race is and the shape of your head or whatever. Um, yeah. So I think like it's, it's very compelling for them, but his stuff, like his fitness videos to his credit are just, they're like pretty normal things. I don't know why you would post them. Um, yeah. This is kind of the impression that I got. Cause it was sort of like, okay, he's a decent tennis player, but he's not amazing. And also like, I feel like tennis is a really weird sport to make that kind of video style from um like i sort of get it if you're like lifting weights or if you're doing like jujitsu or something like that like you know you can sort of make yourself look like you know tough and vicious but i i've i've never seen a tennis player i've never seen a tennis match where like the takeaway i've got from that is like wow this guy could kick the shit out of me yeah it's also funny like i love <laughs> i love tennis i picked it up during the pandemic and mostly learned from just like watching youtube and stuff but it's experienced a nice kind of revival compared to compared to pickleball, where now it's like more of a you know normal person yeah. sport. But yeah. it's not seen as an everyman pastime. So it's weird for this right. anti woke. Yeah. I'm just like you. Watch me play tennis at this you know very nice club. Um, yeah, which is I think you know just another one of the factors for him where. You just look at his pedigree, look at his where he went to school, look at what his pastimes are, and then what he's trying to portray himself as is this like, you know, anti Bud Light um, 
you know, every man. And it just doesn't make any sense. But it's one of those things where if you just say it enough, I guess he's wearing a hat that says truth. So it must be true. Um, yeah. Like there's so much daylight between, you know, who he is and then what he's saying. Yeah. Um, the other the other aspect of those videos too is that he's just not ripped enough. Like even during the gym videos, I feel like you can't really do that stuff unless you're doing something really, really impressive or if you're like really jacked. But he's doing a very normal workout and he is pretty skinny for the most part. I, I I'm like and I'm not trying to like do any body shaming here or anything, I promise, but it's more just like if you're gonna use that as campaign material, you kind of it, it, you kind of have to figure out what that is in relation to storytelling and so it sort of felt a bit confusing to watch sort of bizarre to watch and it didn't make any sense why he was posting it other than because he thought it was impressive it's kind of like people who put post like pictures of their food that you know i am they're proud of like the stuff that they've cooked and that's amazing but you kind of look at it and you're like yeah it's not i i don't understand if why that was post worthy but i don't know maybe i i feel like i'm now just being quite harsh <laughs> to that because like yeah, I, I, okay. I, I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm now really being harsh to that. But I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that like, it doesn't, nece- it doesn't necessarily fit into whatever narrative Ramaswamy is trying to kind of get at. Which kind of brings me to like the broader question, which is like, well, what is Ramaswamy actually trying to, like, say? Like, what is he trying to promote? Um, because I feel it. I feel like a lot of it is confused, and maybe part of it is because of this recognition that like. Trump is very much the front runner and Trump is very different to these candidates. And so perhaps this is like an attempt at triangulation. You can't sort of, you know, it's not a good idea to necessarily like sort of criticize Trump because you're going to get really screwed over for it. But at the same time, you need to differentiate yourself to some degree. Um, But it doesn't really make sense what Ramaswamy's like overall vision is and i wondered whether you had any thoughts on like what like with with his assemblage of like content bizarre like views about wokeness and like its sort of prevalence in the u.s like in u.s politics and just his general demeanor is there a vision of like the u.s that he is actually trying to project to the public yeah i mean not as far as i can tell and just this is my personal opinion he doesn't seem to hold any really strong beliefs it more so seems like he has engineered a bunch of ideas based on what he's seeing online and what will play online. Um, you know, going back to those troops that he had. And one of the theories that I have that he, I don't know how likely it is, is he's coming out here, you know, he's saying all these wacko shit and he said he's going to, you know, like basically disband the government when he becomes president. And then, you know, say this campaign flops. And then he could come back and run again and, you know, pivot, like do a, a startup maneuver. And he'll have that baseline of being like, you know, I'm not that guy anymore. I'm not this nut job. I'm, you know, watered down now. And by comparison, I seem like a reasonable person. Or he just like becomes a pundit and stays the same in his, mm-hmm. his views. But in terms of his platform and like, you know, his vision, what he has put out there is like pretty apocalyptic and unrealistic even on the right has been described as unrealistic but Mm. you know i think going back to the idea of from a poster's mindset and a branding exercise mindset where you're just thinking about impressions in absolute value even if someone's saying Mm. vivek ramaswamy is an idiot they're saying vivek ramaswamy which is good for him because obviously nobody knew him before he ran um so i think that's like the way that i'm thinking about it not necessarily that what he's saying makes sense. And I think sometimes people are reverse engineering why he's struck a chord, but he hasn't really, right? If you look at, you know, how compelling he is and a bunch of the base is like, wait, this guy's a Hindu? Like, (laughs) Yeah, because I guess it's like those sort of things that like, you know, you can try, like you can post as much as you want. Like you're not really going to be able to get out of those, like those types of structural problems are not going to be resolved anytime you know so, or like they won't be resolved through posting um and this is sort of where i feel like this is sort of amusing but quite instructive as to what like a future of like western politics might look like to the degree that like i wonder whether there is an overestimation as to the effects that posting has on your political chances i feel like the whole sort of like obama um 
became really popular because he was like his team used social media really well which like i think is a little bit contentious as a theory but is like one of those things that seems to be embedded into the myths of like modern america like modern american politics to the point where every candidate is now trying to basically do the same thing um but where we sort of get to a point where like posting is ubiquitous i do wonder whether the idea of like being able to post your way to the white house kind of isn't really real anymore i don't know like because there is also the argument that like trump sort of did it but did it through this sort of existing network of like right-wing posters who had sort of always been doing it anyway and what vivek is seemingly trying to do is get his own momentum from a similar place but as anyone who posts a lot knows like you can't really do that like you can't create like a base of posters like like to kind of get a ba- to get like an electoral base is one thing, but I feel like you can't really get that loyalty when it comes to posting. Yeah, I think the other two examples of Obama and Trump are different because it was an ex- like they their teams, you know, orchestrated to just have a broader reach, and it was an extension of their personality. You know, you saw like an Obama Facebook video, and you're like, okay, yeah, this is the guy I heard talk on TV, and then you see a. Mm you know, Trump tweet and you're like, yeah, this is the same insane racist bullshit that I saw on TV. And I like this or I don't like this. And with Ramaswamy, it seems like it's posting first. Like I can't imagine a scenario where, you know, he gets this savvy social media team and then he turns out, you know, very insecure Indian American men to be like, hey, I'm going to go out and knock on some doors and ask people if they've heard about this guy and his 10 truths. Because like, yeah people would laugh you out of their home. But, you know, it it might make for interesting content. But if the product, because just to me, some people have said he's compelling to me, comes off as like a very annoying debate club kind of guy who, Mm. you know, doesn't really have any real charisma. It seems like very kind of focus grouped. Like, this is what I'm going to say, because, you know, 79% of the 4chan kids we polled said it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it does. I I think you I think you sort of touched on something there in terms of like the relationship between like TV and online culture, right? Where like, you know, the sort of resonance or like the power of like posting sort of comes from like the analog to the digital, the idea that like they could they either sort of work both they both work in conjunction or um, TV still like kind of has a lot of power. And so like if you can kind of hear it first there and then it goes online, there is like the res like it seems to sort of be more resonant that way. But the two audiences don't really cross. And it's kind of one of the reasons why whenever you get like a guy who is quite popular on the internet and then you put them in front of a TV screen, like they just aren't very good. They don't really resonate particularly well. In a lot of cases, it can sort of kill careers, it can kill political ambitions and so on. And I just do, and I do wonder in this case, whether this strategy of like kind of launching your campaign on the basis of posting with posters may be able to get you recognized very quickly and may be able to sort of get you hype around like a very online media environment of like journalists and reporters and political like pundits but it doesn't really go beyond that and so the issue then and this is a very tech issue as well which is you know we talk we've spoken a lot on this show about the um the sort of how impressions are fake on twitter but how uh the ways in which metrics and stuff are presented uh, can kind of give off the idea that certain things are a lot more popular or more resonant than they actually are. And I wonder whether like Vivek has sort of seen, you know, seen his kind of popularity on the internet and seemingly has taken the bait that like, well, this must mean I'm very popular in America as well. And so why not run for president when he'd probably be better off just like staying in startups and being like a weird guy there? Yeah. No, it- I guess he can go back, right? Like, you know, he can lose the election and like maybe not become like, VP or whatever, and probably just go back to being like a dipshit online, but like at Andreessen Horowitz or something. Yeah, no, another thing that I posited that he might do after is like start an anti-woke SAT prep company or something, because <laughs> I feel like he's built, he's built for the private sector. Um, but I think it goes back to, it's one of those things where it doesn't really matter what they actually believe, because what they're saying and, and what they're promising yeah. is what matters. But just very cynically, it seems like you know, a branding exercise and everything about him has been talked about just in absolute value. Like in the GOP uh, debate, people were saying that he got embarrassed and all these things, but he also took up the most airtime and that was, or it was like discussed the most or whatever it is. And like, that was the metric that kept on being 
you know, trotted out because it is, you know, the attention and, you know, in either direction, which is useful if this is a branding exercise and not a true, you know, run for president. Yeah. Um, I'm just conscious about the time and I know that you've got to go pretty soon, but I just wanted to like wrap up the conversation by asking like one kind of more speculative question, which is uh, in the run up to like the US presidential election, if uh, what we are kind of seeing is sort of a dominance of sort of online fixations, obsessions enter into the mainstream. Um, I wondered what your thoughts were on like, well, what happens if, for example, uh, like voters don't kind of go for the GOP, like whether it be at Trump, be it someone else, partly on the basis that like too much online shit is just kind of like, um, you know, all, all that the Republicans are too fixated on this online shit. Like, what do you think that that's going to make like a shit? Do you think that all this sort of fixation on kind of online culture is going to cause a shift in kind of US politics? generally um and i know that's like quite a big question but i do wonder whether if like both parties as we're sort of seeing kind of in the uk like as both parties are unable to answer kind of these big questions around economy and sort of material the material of well-being of society um how do you think like the sort of fixations on online material will change the way that politics is done and understood in places like the us yeah I think, you know, the fixation on posting, like, you know, trying to, I don't know how many millions of dollars they spent trying to make it seem like Ron DeSantis has charisma, but it's like failing right. so, <laughs> so spectacularly. And there are all these, you know, actual material problems in terms of wages and like the ongoing strikes and all this stuff. So it just, I think the contrast is just becoming more and more apparent. So that either the next step is, you know, offering something which they're not going to do or making content that seems more, that feels and smells more material, you know, they'll probably be like, oh, these people are striking because of wokeness and not because of mm. fair wages. So just getting something, kind of being more savvy and approximating their message so it feels like it's something that matters. Um, mm. But yeah, I think we'll see what happens, but the people who like Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis are, you know, doing so poorly. And the message is, if you were to ask people like what platforms do they have, it's nothing really tied to, you know, people's lives or well-being. Um, mm. So I could see that changing. Like, you know, Ted Cruz went on TV the other day and had this like, I don't know if you saw this bit where he's standing with a bunch of like farmers behind him and they all drink a beer in unison. I forget. I haven't seen that. Oh my god! <laughs> and it really seems like a you know cut scene from like some stupid video game or something. Like he yeah. organized this TV hit where at the at the same time he grabs a beer and opens it, and then they all drink behind him, and he says like they're gonna have to take this beer from you know my cold dead hands. I think it was because there was a recommendation that people have no more than oh, two yes. drinks. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's like one of those um, things where it was clearly orchestrated. They're like, okay, we're going to do this bit and it's going to go, you know, online. Um, yeah. And I don't think anyone is, is really compelled by that. But I think the thing that we consistently have to remember is not to end, underestimate how stupid some people are here um, and how san sanded down their brains have been by online. So I guess it'll yeah. be a Yeah. Well, I'm very excited. Day. I'm very excited and sort of petrified to see that play out. Um, although that sort of, you know, on, on the plus side, it does mean that the world's best poster, Donald Trump, might uh, might be posting some bangers pretty soon, <laughs> uh, or at least like some getting some mainstream bangers pretty soon. Uh, so who's to say whether that's good or bad? Um, Ashwin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if people want to follow your work and the stuff you're doing, how can they do that? Um, they can go to my website, AshwinRodriguez.com, or just follow me on Twitter. My name is uh, Schwinyo on there. Uh, we'll also put the links to Ashwin's article, uh, the GQ article about uh, Ramaswamy's fitness, uh, weird fitness videos in the show notes if you are interested in reading that. Uh, thank you for listening to this free episode of 10,000 Posts. We really appreciate it. Um, there are a lot, there's lots of really good bonus content on our Patreon. It's five bucks a month. It helps us to do the show without ads. It also helps us to keep it editorially independent. We value those very, very highly. 
Um, you know what Phoebe's plugs are? I will put them in the show notes if I haven't already. And then finally, this show is produced by Devon. You can follow them at Devon underscore on Earth. You can also listen to their podcast. It's called Kill James Bond and it's very, very good. Uh, until next time, we'll catch you later. Bye.